Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending Friday the 4th of December. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, you'll hear us chat to Josh Earl about uh, the 10 episodes filmed of his podcast, Don't You Know Who I Am? And we also chat to Dr. Jen uh, and she told us all about the dog's training to detect covid uh, speaking of COVID, uh, apparently you can get away with things by saying because of COVID at the end of it now. Uh, also, we chatted to Jana Favero about the um, Time for a Home campaign and Simonia Boldy popped in for her screen review. We spoke to director Pip Kelly about a documentary on Stan, Thomas Banks' Quest for Love, and we chatted about the heavy onus of the weekly shop. Triple R. Josh Earl is a comedian, musician, television and, of course, radio presenter who hosts Don't You Know Who I Am, 10 episodes of which, taped for online, are on sale today. And to tell us about it, the Triple R alum joins us on the line now. Josh, welcome back to Breakfasters. Thank you for having me. Welcome, everyone. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> How's everything oh, going? thanks. Yeah, great. And you got the Triple R mug. I do, yeah. I'm drinking a coffee, and it's my Triple R mug, and it's the one I use every morning. I'm not just doing it for you guys for this morning. I actually do drink out of it every morning. Dead set. Um, how many episodes have you done of this show so far? Uh, we're 234 in the in the normal feed, and then there's a Patreon feed with one every week at the minute, and then these 10 extra live stream uh, episodes that didn't go in the main feed. Oh my wow. god! And and how many episodes of Gerald has Geraldine been on of those? Do you think? <laughs> well, Geraldine is the leading leading on the tally board on yeah. uh, most amount of appearances. I'm the um, Hamish Blake of the. Yeah, <laughs> I, think I think it's twelve. Twelve. So think yeah. On every four months. Yeah, I don't count. It's I'm reliable. You know, yes. I'm around. <laughs> Is, is there, do you have a f- photographic memory of every show or are they all blurring into one or can you pluck anecdotes out of the air from episode 19? So, so for the listeners, the concept of the show is that it's a quiz all about the four guests' lives. And so I know so much about people, like, because before the show, I sent them an email saying, hey, with Jez, I'll just go, hey, have you got any stories? Like, mm. or hey, what's some good talk breaks that you want to talk about on, on the pod? And uh, But people will send me through the emails, and so there's a lot of stuff I don't use because I'm like, well, that's not going to fit with the show. But I know all this information about friends of mine that I'm like, I probably shouldn't know that information. Like, it's <laughs> it's it's a weird kind of thing. Like, And so Danielle Walker, who I know you guys have on the show, she was doing something the other week, and she's like, hey, have you got a, like a an Excel spreadsheet of all my stories for me? <laughs> And I'm like, no, I don't care about that, but I can go through all our old emails. So I had literally like four pages of stories that she'd sent through. And she's like, great, this is perfect. Thank you. And it's like, yeah, so (laughs) I'm happy to give. Wow. You're like a one-man oral history of Melbourne comedy. Yeah. (laughs) It's funny because one of the um, parts of the the game is that you go through our social media feed and then ask, you know, who said this on social media and the amount of times that I've just gone, oh, wow, I do not remember saying that. It happens so much. Yeah. It was was that thing. Before before Trump, like, social media was a fun place. (laughs) And I've noticed, I've been doing the show long enough that since Trump came in, it's very hard to find funny tweets that people have done. Uh, But hopefully 
Hopefully we get back to a place where we don't have to think about him every day. Yeah. Wow. It's true, isn't it? The greatest minds of our generation. Have... Well, I had I had Josie Long on uh, last week uh, from the UK, which has been one of the good things about this whole process that so many like people are like, I'm inside all day. I've got time to do a podcast. Great. Uh, and so she has this rule where every three months she just deletes all her Twitter feed. <gasps> Yeah, which is a good rule wow. to try and keep yourself sane. But, like, for my job, it was like, oh, Joe, <laughs> get me something. Um, so tell us about these upcoming 10 episodes. Oh, so these are the 10 episodes that we recorded live. Uh, so we did live streams in uh, April and going into June and early July. And they were just up for 24 hours. And so uh, we thought, oh, they were so good because we weren't sure how they would go. Like everything was kind of up in the air. We're like, oh, we're not sure. But they ended up with the help of Stupid Old Studios in Brunswick looking so amazing that we were like, this is kind of a bit of a waste to just have them disappear for 24 hours, especially with the lineups. Like we had people like Jez did one. We had uh, like Will Anderson, Steph Tisdale, Silly uh, Bacola, Kate McLennan. Uh, who else did we have? Uh, Matt Stewart, the, all the Dugo honors. Like, it was just such good lineups that were like, it's, it is a bit of a waste and the shows were super, super funny and also different from the actual uh, podcasts because we had Ben Russell and uh, Xavier Michaelides, two Melbourne comedians, very, very good at doing uh, impressions. So we had a round where they were both being Dave Hughes <laughs> and Daniel Walker had to guess if it was a true story about Dave Hughes or if it was a story about me. And it's a kind of, that was a one that it's not normally in the podcast. And we thought, oh, it's it's so, so funny that it's uh, silly not to try and let more people see them. Hmm. Uh, and what about, is there a guest that you, you're looking forward to that you haven't nabbed yet? Uh, well, I, I haven't had Husey, but I've had him on uh, as Ben Russell and Xavier uh, Michael. <laughs> so I think that's fine. Uh, there, is, there is a few in, in America. So there's... Uh, who, who have I most? I've been very, very lucky that I've asked most people. Like I've had like people like uh, Beth Stelling, who's just got a HBO uh, special. Mm. Uh, she's on one of these these ones as well. Uh, Joe Firestone, who's in uh, a whole bunch of stuff that you would have seen on Netflix. She's in that Shrill show. She plays yes. uh, HR manager. Uh, so John Gabrus was really good. I would love to have Paul F. Tompkins. He, he's my he's my one who I'm like okay. If I can get him, it's pretty much all right. We'll yeah. pack up. Pack well, up, what, pack the up. question: Why haven't you had? Have you not asked him yet? Or I, well, I asked him on on Instagram messages because that's the one kind of social media platform where you can just send someone a message, but they don't necessarily see it. So yeah. I've I've asked him that way, but I know. Look, he's friends with like people like Demi Lardner and the Annie Donner boys. So I, I've had them on last week. So I might I might actually ask him. Mm-hmm. One degree like, of separation get, now. Get them. So hey, look, they've been on. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Uh, it's what about um? I was thinking. I remember a sketch you did on Lime Champions. Uh, it was a Breakfasters sketch. Do you, do you remember? It a was... Breakfasters sketch. So it was. Uh, so it was when uh, Jess McGuire, Fee, and Ben were all. Is this the sketch you're talking about? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. And I just cut up. Look, and having done Breakfasters, I know how mean this is now. But I just cut up. <laughs> I just said, this is a, the Breakfasters highlight of the week, and I just cut up all the ums. Yeah. Uh, oh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was just, it was just, they interviewed Marie Hardy. I said, oh, welcome back, Marie Hardy. Um, yeah, yeah. And then it went for like 30, 40 seconds. And then the that monster. was it. And, uh, with the Lime Champions, I, I love Lime Champions and I still think it's one of the best things I've ever done. But it was one of the things like, we didn't know who was listening. And then you do a sketch like that and you realize, oh no, lots of people are listening. <laughs> we would always say we only make fun and it's playful of the, the shows that we listen to. 
And so yeah. it, it was always people were like, oh, how can you do that to uh, Big Z? And I'm like, well, I listen to the show. Yeah, and so I, I, I'm enjoying the show. And it was, it's I, a, I remember we did a sketch about him yelling about bikes and none of us knowing if he was for them or against them. And that was, <laughs> 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 uh, it's affectionate. Um, when and, you, sorry, just quickly, when no. you're putting together the um, the four people that go on the show, for don't you know who I am, is there anything that you take into consideration when you're putting – people together yeah i it used to be oh, how great will it be if i get four people who don't really know each other and then they'll learn it. and then now it's more like no no it's it's way better especially through uh zoom and stuff it's way better if they do know each other and have a bit of a connection so mm. i had uh daniel connell and laura dunneman on one and they're, they're a married couple yeah and when i when i said a story that dan didn't know about laura he was <laughs> so shocked he was like, hey, no you wouldn't have done that and it was because it was a live one as well, and it was one of those ones where the whole audience thought, oh, no, we're witnessing something that's going to be a car ride conversation. <laughs> uh, what about the pandemic, and has that actually been a boon a little bit? Does that mean you can have guests on that you might not otherwise have had? It, it, yeah, I've had a lot of international guests over this time. It, it's also made it so much more accessible for people. Instead of having to drive into the studio in Brunswick, they can just do it from home, like, I've had a lot of Sydney comics as well, just because Sydney's got such a good comedy scene that it's that thing of going, it'd be a waste. Like someone like Alexi Toliopoulos, who had never been on, and so listeners might know him from the Fighting Drago, Fighting Desperado podcast, which is very, very good. Uh, he's now been on four times in the space of this pandemic. So it's one of those things. It's like once I get someone who I think is super, super funny and super easy to work with as well, it's like, oh, great, you're going to be on the rotation of people I message to say, hey, can you come on? Yeah. Mm. Mm. And after hundreds of episodes now, is there is there something that you started with that you like is is now a rod for your own back? Oh, the Twitter stuff! It's like going through Twitter, every, like I feel like I can't get off Twitter because if I do, I'm going to miss out on stuff. And which is the listeners now get it's at the stage where if someone tweets something, they go, "Oh, this would be perfect for the podcast." They just add me in, so I'm getting all right. Thank you. <laughs> and so someone like Nina Oyama is always getting people just adding Josh Earl, and she tweets the most. Rank stuff. Mm. So <laughs> it's that thing like uh, people who are just scrolling through going, oh, is Josh into that kind of stuff? I'm not sure. So yeah, I've got to be careful. <laughs> well, uh, can you give us the details of uh, where we can get the show? Okay, so it's all at joshearl.com.au. So it's 10 episodes, it's over 11 hours of entertainment, 50 bucks. And uh, yeah, it's one of those things that's it's a really good t- taster if you've never listened to the podcast before. It looks really great. It's not like it's just like, it's not like it's just a Zoom call. It was filmed at Stubel Studios with professional people. And yeah, super, super happy with it. And a whole bunch of people from all over the world, really. Like all, all, the, all the comics. So I'm like, these are really, really good people as well as uh, good comedians. Yeah. Also, you're wearing glasses and you look really professional in it. Yeah. Well, that's because the week before the Do Go On people wore suits in their show. And so I thought, oh, I better wear a suit because I'll be wearing suits. Because I had this thing where the host can't be dressed worse than the guests. And then they came, they were all wearing band t shirts. I'm like, oh, this is stuffed up. Yeah. <laughs> I was a bit dirty on you for putting me on with them, I'll be honest. Why? Because they all know each other. Like, oh, let's get a let's get a trio and add Jez in the middle of it and see if she wins this one. I didn't. I was fine. I'm not competitive. Don't worry. Ah, brilliant. Uh, Well, also, I just want to, you've got, uh, not to mix messages, but you're, you're playing music as well. Uh, 
I, I do. I, I'm, not, the not kids, just, the, I'm thinking about the oh, children's stuff. My kids, yeah, I have an Instagram page uh, called Josh L Kids, and during because I was meant to be doing a show in Perth uh, during this pandemic, and I got cancelled. I had this show that was like ready to go, so I thought I'll put some of the songs up on uh, on Instagram. And so one of the songs, which was called "Where We're All Still Learning," kind of went really, really great. Didn't go like jimmy giggle kind of talking about packaging great but it was like a really good little thing and lots of people saying hey this is really great can can i buy it it's, it's just up on instagram for free it's on uh josh l kids if you've got kids and you know this whole, especially during the homeschooling it was very tough for a lot of uh kids and parents that was like a nice little reminder that we're all in this kind of not to be too benly but in this together and we're all kind of feeling it feeling it as we go along yeah, just another side, the gifted Josh Earl. Uh, JoshEarl.com.au for all the apps of Don't You Know Who I Am. Thanks heaps for coming on, Josh. Thanks, everyone. Melbourne's own Triple R. <laughs> Dr. Jen's sitting, staying, come to heel to join us for Weird Science. <laughs> Morning, Dr. Jen. Doesn't that just mean I should, you know, pant loudly? Or... <laughs> yes, that's what the listeners want. <laughs> really informative. Yes, Daniel, I'm here, Daniel. Uh, you get a treat. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, when you take your dog walking and they just constantly sniff everything, mm. have you guys heard about how incredible dogs' sense of smell is? Only that uh, much. Like, I've just heard that like, sentence. Yeah. So it turns out that it's 10,000 times better than ours, which is quite a substantial difference. So we have about 6 million scent receptors. Dogs have 300 million. Wow. What so are they still eat garbage then? <laughs> obviously, it smells good, mate. Why else would you? But so, you know, we're hugely dependent on sight as a species, but dogs are much more dependent on smell. And I think everyone's probably seen dogs at airports that are there to detect explosives or or drugs or fruit. And the stat that I found, which I hope it's accurate because I love it, is that if you have one drop of liquid in in 20 Olympic swimming pools, that's the ratio that a dog needs to be able to smell something. Amazing. Incredible. Hey, so it's not surprising that dogs use their sense of smell for all sorts of wonderful things in their own world. But I think most people have probably heard that dogs have also really been at the cutting edge of a whole lot of medical things because they can smell so much better than we can. So there's dogs that are trained to um, be diabetes support dogs and they can smell on the breath of a person who is diabetic when they're about to get hypoglycemic. And they reckon like 15 to 20 minutes before there would be any um, indication from the from the uh, diabetic person's, you know, equipment to say you got to do something, the dog can let them know because you can train a dog to either sit down or pat you or do something. Like we can train a dog to detect these really subtle changes in how humans smell mm-hmm. and then to let us know when they smell a change. So there's been dogs that have been trained to detect superbugs in hospitals. You know, you also hear about, always hear about hospital acquired infections you know you go in and you come home with a really dangerous infection Mm. there's this dog in Vancouver who's been trained every day he goes into the hospital and sniffs around and he can tell you where this particular bacteria is found and so then they quickly bring in the cleaning crew and clean up the bacteria wow Wow. you do feel sorry for these dogs don't you because they you know normally people are so happy to see a dog but then if a dog comes up to you it's like oh no (laughs) (laughs) well that's 
thing. So dogs have now been trained to detect malaria, tuberculosis, Parkinson's. I even read this one study where they'd been trained to detect this particular bacterial infection in citrus trees. So the dog can walk around an orchard and let the farmer know this tree's got this bacterial infection. You need to take it out quickly before it infects all the other trees in the orchard. I mean, that's crazy, right? But how do you know when they're telling you that and they're not just barking? Like, how can you tell, you know, how do you, it's, how does the human know what the dog is detecting? Well, because they've been trained. So there's lots mm. of sort of stories where people have said, you know, all of a sudden my dog got really upset all the time and kept patting at my face or kept patting at my chest and it turned out, you know, that person had a melanoma or that person had breast cancer. So there's lots of kind of stories, but there are dogs out there that this is their full-time job. You know, they are trained mm. and they are trained on one smell so they, they can detect colon cancer or ovarian cancer or breast cancer. So there are these uh, compounds called volatile organic compounds, which basically release lots of smell essentially. Um, And dogs get trained on them and they can be trained very specifically and relatively quickly. Um, And so, of course, the question now is can we use dogs to detect COVID, right? Yeah. So if instead of having to have something shoved up your nose and then wait for a day or two or whatever for results, mm. can we train dogs to do that? Because you can, can you imagine if you, you know, just before you're allowed on an aeroplane, a dog just walks past you, gives you a sniff. If it mm. walks straight past, you're fine. If it sits down, then you've got COVID. Mm. So, so I, want to, I want the dog to sniff me like the maybe uh, the day before I go or <laughs> do, like not at the last minute because I'll be so excited about getting on the plane <laughs> and then there'd be the snip, oh, no, man, I've got to go back home. I'd be devastated. Yeah, I mean, I guess, but it's better than getting on the plane, right, and infecting Yes, people. yes, it is, and I understand. <laughs> Just not so good for you personally. It's good for all yeah. the rest of the passengers, though. Yeah. Yes. So so people basically all around the world are currently in the throes of trying to train dogs to be able to detect COVID. And they reckon a dog that's already been trained to detect other scents, you can get them trained on COVID in only six to eight weeks. Mm. If a dog's never been trained to be a sniffer dog like that before, it can take three to six months. But still, in the mm, scheme, right. it's like that's pretty far. That's so interesting, isn't mm. it? So it's like Jenkins, you're off. Yeah, that's Co- right. You're off cocaine. We're on to coronavirus. <laughs> and so we don't actually know what dogs are sniffing. Like we don't know what the compounds are that makes us smell different when we get COVID. But the early evidence is in. The first paper from a from a, a trial, a study looking at dogs' ability to detect COVID has just been published. And the results are pretty phenomenal. So they started training back in March in France and they trained them on sweat samples because, of course, you don't want to say, you know, here, smell this piece of spit from this person who's got COVID. You know, mm. you don't want to risk infecting anybody. Not that we think dogs can get infected by mm. COVID, but obviously their handlers can. So the dogs have been trained on uh, sweat samples all around the world and it turns out that they look at, it looks like it's pretty good. So uh, there were some dogs in Germany that ident- could identify 83% of COVID samples reliably. Wow. And there was another one that had, I think it was 84% or something, like, you know, reasonably good compared to the accuracy of the actual tests that we have. It's not that different. And you've got um, to make sure they're not, you know, you've got to have, you don't want to have false positives. So you've also got to make sure that they don't tell you that someone who doesn't have COVID has COVID. So they're doing all of these really quite important tests to work out if they're good enough. Is there any particular breed of dog that is better at it? 
Yeah, that's what you'd think, right? But no, it turns out that it's mostly just about having a dog who really likes people and really wants to please their trainer. Can you make money out of this? (laughs) (laughs) What's what's your plan, Mon? Well, I've got a chihuahua who hates people, but I reckon she could come around. (laughs) So in Helsinki, they've already got dogs at the Helsinki airport. They've already got dogs uh, out there doing tests and they're keeping really close records. So basically anyone that the dogs tells the owner, this person has COVID, then they make that person go and actually get the test Mm. so that then they're actually, you know, they're collecting really good data to try and work out if, you know, if they can get accurate enough. It could make big changes in how we travel, think about people who work in aged care, think about people who work in hospitals, think about sporting events. You know, if all you need is a dog to sniff your armpit to give you the okay. Mm. And the most important thing is that the evidence is dogs can detect it before you have any symptoms. So you have zero COVID symptoms, but a dog can detect with about somewhere around 80 to 90% accuracy that you do have COVID, which is it's a game changer, total game changer, because it's not expensive, it's not that expensive. You know, I'd much rather have a dog sniff my armpit than stick something up my nose. Yeah. <laughs> and I, um, I – oh, go on, Jess, oh, sorry. Just because the text came through, and I know you said it, but the, a dog can't get COVID, can it? No, the evidence is that dogs don't get COVID, so we're not putting any dogs at risk. And because they've been trained to do it on sweat samples, they're not putting the owners at risk. I mean, with all of these things, the way they do it is that there's like this kind of sniffing kind of cone, a stainless steel cone that the dog puts their nose into, but the actual thing they're sniffing, whatever it is, whether it's sweat or urine or blood or whatever it is, that's a a container at the bottom that the dog can't get to. So obviously, you know, the people who do this work, they adore their dogs. They would never put their dogs at risk. And the reason... Mm -hmm dogs do it is because they love their owners and they want to please their owners they're trained to get you know pats and hugs and food rewards when they do the right thing so I don't know it's pretty awesome but my favorite thing I read you guys know I like German right like I love the German language Mm -hmm. in German these dogs are called Corona Schnuffelnde Hunde Hunde. How good is that? Because they're schnuffling. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be a schnuffling Hunde. That's right. <laughs> if you say it fast, it sounds like you've got a symptom. <laughs> uh, God, it's so interesting. These dogs where, you know, I just look at the dogs in my life that are only interested in barbecue chickens and I just think these altruistic dogs are putting them to shame. <laughs> uh, and I also wonder whether dogs that see, you know, these trained dogs where they react the same as they would ordinarily do to the stimulus, like food or, you know. um, But we'll have to get one on and ask them. Uh, Dr. Jen, (laughs) just so fascinating. Um, And uh, we'll talk again soon. Talk to you next week, guys. See ya. Thanks, Dr. Jen. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Been having a lovely time in my little getaway into the into the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going back home today, but um, Saturday night uh, went out for dinner. Just went to a pub for dinner. Has there there's been an increase on the capacity in yeah in restaurants, yes. hasn't there? Yeah. Um, I certainly hope that there had been. <laughs> it was it was one of those things where you know we got an early booking because it was like. You know, that's all that was available. But I'm I'm a big fan of the early booking. Love it. Mm. Love it. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, we get there and we kind of get taken out the back um, and there's only one other table out there. And it's one of those things where we get sat right next 
to the one other table and the table who knows whether it's a um an uh, a mad monday type but it was just mm. all all men just young men and it's one of those things where it's like individually i'm sure you are all lovely but <laughs> together you're a pack and it's <laughs> yuck um but it was so but it was fine like you know they were somewhat loud um but that was about it and also it was you know after a while plenty of other people were there and they were kind of drowned out by everybody else anyway um but it was yeah had a great meal we had one friend that uh was um had been out uh like having afternoon drinks and so he was like oh i'm gonna i'll go home I'll go home and sober up and then I'll I'll be there and it's like you're not, just you can just not come. It's okay just to, you know, cuz you know when you you start afternoon and you've got to go out again mm. and it's like how how maybe it's just best to stay at home, but all credit to him, he just he just went, "No, nah, I'm coming. Order me a Palmer and I'll I'll be there." And the most perfect timing, his plate rocks up. They sit down, they put a palmer next to an empty seat and a minute later he walks in the door with a bike helmet on. He'd ridden his bike and sits down and, like, do you want a drink? goes, no, I'll just have water, sits there, has a chat with us, eats his palmer and then goes, all right, I'm off. It's like oh. it was quicker <laughs> than getting food delivered to your house. I'm like, well, that, you know, that actually worked out pretty well. Like he probably, you know, was hanging for something good to eat and popped into the pub, got himself a palmer. And then and left. Went, oh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to rain. I better get home before the rain starts. I'm like, all right, mate. That's so superhuman. That's excellent stuff. Oh, I was so impressed. Because once you, once you, if you're deciding to pull up stumps in the afternoon, it's yeah. pretty unusual oh. to put the stumps back in again, mm. isn't it? And then, but just that the oh, I'll go home and sober up, and then I'll cut. And it's like no one's doing that. Mm. No one does that. Turns out they do. But why know? is it? Why is it necessary? I mean, it wasn't a job interview. Like, yeah. who cares if you turn up to the pub a bit half cut? <laughs> no, that's yeah. I have I have no problems with that at all. I I get half cut when I'm there. Um, <laughs> Also, when we were uh, leaving, it was uh, we went to to pay the bill, and I, you know, I left my wallet in Venus Bay. What a fun thing that's been for the week! But it's like I've just been using the pass on my phone, so yeah. that it's you know I've survived, no problem. Um, but it meant that when we went to pay our bill, um, they were like. All the guy, I'm like, because oh, I was first in line. I'm like, oh yeah, just here to pay. And he goes, yep. So it was this much. And I'm like, I, I'm, I'm just gonna. And he goes, oh yeah, no, no split bills, um, no split bills because of COVID. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and I, I turned around and I went, someone else has to pay for this because I can't pay for it all on my phone. 
And all, and then while someone else is paying for it, I'm like, because of COVID? What do you mean because of COVID? You, you know, you didn't do split bills before COVID was a thing. And also because of COVID, have a look around. This place is heaving. It's heaving. There's so many people here. What do you mean because of COVID? Now I'm thinking because of COVID is just going to be the new excuse uh, for everything. Like, <laughs> oh, Sorry, I'm, I'm so, late. <laughs> yeah, it's because of COVID. Sorry, you can't. Oh, Sorry. Tram conductor, I haven't got a ticket because of COVID. Yeah. A in, is a tram conductor's back in COVID normal? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's because of COVID. Tram conductors are back. Well, it's obviously, <laughs> it's obviously not that because I went into the city. I ventured into the city on Saturday night for dinner. Fourteen of us, very overwhelming experience. Or yeah. split the bill or went up and paid individually on our cards. It's not hard. It's it is not, not hard to do. <laughs> We've it, all it got COVID first... now, though, I should add. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it. I, just, I was so, like, I just, oh, man, I, I had to, I, I walked out. I was the first one to walk out of the pub. I'm like, the whole time, Muttery just going, because of COVID. And it's just, don't tell me it's because of COVID. I have no problems. If you don't want to split the bill, just say, you know, no split bills. Like, give us a warning at the time. Have it on the menu. Sorry, no split bills. We're really busy and we can't. Or just don't give me the excuse of because of COVID. Like, yeah. It's, it's yeah. so interesting because a lot of the pubs I've been to insist on split bills. Yeah, it's like I'm, because of I'm, COVID. Because <laughs> I was so close to going. Oh, well, you're the first pub that I've been to that you know doesn't do a split bill. But okay, sure, because of COVID, no, no I'm, problem. I'm also thinking about the QR code that you're using and using your QR code to order as well, and and then paying on your phone, mm. and so suddenly. This goddamn device that I didn't want to bring anyway is becoming increasingly central to my universe and there's no battery and there's no battery in part because of the COVID safe app draining the Bluetooth because of COVID. (laughs) I had a, um, I was, uh, yeah, at at, at the gig that I was at on, on Friday night or Thursday night, anyway, we had to, you know, do the QR code, and this other guy just goes, "Nah, can't do it. My phone doesn't let me do it." And they went, "Oh, okay. Um, sure, we'll we'll do it for you." So I'm like, "I might, I might start using that just straight up." Nah, phone doesn't like doing it. So <laughs> sorry, because of COVID, can't, can't do it. Triple R. A coalition of 60 grassroots networks, legal, medical, community and human rights organisations are calling on the Morrison government to release and resettle people seeking asylum and refugees in a permanent home so they can recover from seven years of indefinite detention and rebuild their lives. On the line to tell us about the Time for a Home campaign, we're joined from the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre by Jana Favero. Morning, Jana. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Our pleasure. Um... What has been the effect of Australia's offshore processing asylum policy? Oh, the offshore processing asylum policy has been absolutely devastating on the lives of individuals seeking safety on our shores. Um, There have been countless parliamentary inquiries, UN investigations, 13 people have lost their lives as a result of offshore processing, um, including one 
where the coronal inquiry found that it was due to medical negligence and lack of medical care. So not only has it been, it, it's devastating in terms of there have been loss of lives directly because of this policy and that people have been detained for over seven years um, and that's men, women and children. We have seen some challenges in, in the court and people brought to Australia for medical treatment but at the end of the day, people who were subjected to offshore processing have absolutely been inflicted deliberate harm by our government. There's no other way to put it and there's no way to shy away from that, but it's a deliberate policy of harm. Mm. And what what's the current situation? Does it does it all hinge on the, the US, that famous Malcolm Turnbull, Donald Trump phone call and mm. the effect of that? Yeah, look, it is very complicated. I think the government of done this intentionally, so I can't give you a 20-second soundbite of what's happening, but um, there, the US deal is still proceeding. That's about, you know, 1,200 people who will be able to go to the US. About 800 have gone so far and another couple of hundred are approved. So as slow as it's been, as complicated as it's been, um, it, you know, it has actually improved the lives of some people, but we know that, that that's not enough. Um, there are more people who need to be resettled in the US deal. It's also very slow. So there are other options on the table. I mean, the first one is Australia could actually just live up to its obligations and resettle people here because they did <laughs> seek asylum in Australia. We've signed up to the Refugee Convention. Um, there's also New Zealand deal as well on the table. That's 150 places per year that have been offered since 2013, wow. <laughs> um, which haven't been taken up. So we could have had solutions um, for, for that for that population of people. So, yes, the US deal is still on the table. People are still moving through slowly, obviously, with COVID um, that's impacted that, but it's still not enough for everyone. And in the meantime, instead of the government letting people live in the community while they're waiting for resettlement, they are still continuing to lock up people who were transferred under the Medivac laws. So it's not only... Um, what is the potential solution, how long that's taking, but it's also how we are treating people while they're waiting for that. Yeah. And and so what are the details of what you would like to see before World Refugee Day? So what we want to see um, is the immediate release of people from detention. There is no reason at all for the government to be holding people in detention. Like as Malcolm Turnbull told Donald Trump, we know everything about these people. They probably know a lot more than they do about us. I mean, they've mm. been vetted, they've gone through every process. So People are being held in detention unnecessarily, specifically those who came under the Medivac law. You know, that was passed. The government repealed it. They're now holding a political grudge for no other reason than punishing people. Like, oh, we lost a vote on the House of the Floor, so we're going to punish those who came under that law, even though they weren't the ones who created the law. Um, so we're specifically looking for that urgent release from detention. And then secondly, we are looking for resettlement options for a permanent home for everyone who's been subject to offshore processing for the about 1,200 who are in Australia currently. And there are still um, 290 who are on Manus or in PNG and Nauru. There are still some people who are there. Um, the government could do this with the stroke of a pen, release people into the community, um, offer resettlement options. There just needs to be that groundswell of support to demand it because mm. we've seen that the ideology of the government is about punishment and deterrence and that's why we've joined together 
um, with this national coalition of campaign. It's actually grown to over 100 organisations, which is pretty amazing in such a, a short time, um, but it just does show the groundswell of support and demand that the government should release people immediately. Where, in, in terms of support, where is the, you know, because you did current, um, where's the current polling at, at the moment for the support of, you know, freeing these people? Thank you for that question. I was going to mention it in my answer, but thought I was rabbiting on for too long. So <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, so we did do some recent polling which showed that the majority of people in Australia do believe that once someone has been found to be a refugee and, you know, people have been processed that they are resettled immediately. And what was also really interesting was um, the finding that the majority of coalition voters also said that they supported um, the immediate resettlement. So the government's even out of lockstep with its own supporters, which shows that this is, you know, harm for harm's sake, that it's um, it's about deliberately inflicting harm on, on a group of people because of their ideology and stubbornness. What do we know about the conditions on in uh, offshore or onshore detention facilities? Uh, you know, it's obviously Nauru's famously lacks transparency. It's Kafkaesque. What mm-hmm. What do we know? Well, what we know is what we hear from people who are in detention networks. I mean, in in Australia, visits to detention have been suspended since March, which means not only are there people separated from their loved ones and their supports, but also they haven't had access to -to face-to-face to lawyers, even to media. I mean, the government is looking to reinstate that um, in December, but it's been a long time without any visibility. Um, I mean, people are also... Refugees in detention who have spoken out have then at 4.30 in the morning been woken up, handcuffed and forcibly removed. So even those who are speaking out are then being further punished by the government and put into locked detention. So there's this real fear of speaking out, which means it's hard to actually find out what's happening in detention centres because of a, a systemic issue with lack of transparency and accountability. And that's just been built up over years by this government. It's trying to be out of sight out of mind Mm. um and and this is all happening in front of us like we're in melbourne at the mantra on bell street is where they're holding over 65 men simply for coming under medivac because they needed medical treatment which was approved by the australian government and they're still being held in the mantra so i do encourage anyone in melbourne if you're free at 5 p.m on weekdays 3 p.m on weekends please do go down hold up a sign show the men you stand in solidarity and support them because the government really takes our silence as acceptance on this issue, which is why we all need to come together um, to take action and to speak loudly and not let the government continue to get away with deliberately punishing people who, who simply sought safety. Mm. What, what was the effect of the whistleblower laws? Um, so the whistleblower laws, that the biggest effect there was actually just really scaring a whole lot of people and frightening a whole lot of people. Um, that we did see, I mean, we relied on whistleblowers, especially on, on um, Nauru and Papua New Guinea for, for speaking out. But those whistleblower laws, um, well, we haven't actually seen, you know, anyone charged through the morning test cases was that it did really scare people. Um, and as we've seen more recently with people who are then moved after they've spoken out, it really creates such a fear. And, and it's people have already been deeply traumatised. They've fled their home country for a reason, A. They have sought safety in Australia. They've then become a political pawn. They've been sent to Papua New Guinea or to Nauru, maybe sent back for medical treatment and then to Tain. So it's trauma upon trauma. And then to have this risk of... 
um, either if you're a detainee and you speak out or if you're someone working with people in detention that you could then be put into jail. I mean, it just creates this culture of fear where, where people don't want to speak out. And I completely understand that. Yeah. Uh, so what would you like people to do to get involved? Oh, first of all, please go to timeforahome.com.au and sign up to the campaign. We've currently got a petition that's running calling on the Prime Minister to immediately release those in detention and sign up um, for a permanent resettlement solution by Refugee Day. We do have tomorrow night we have an online rally which will be kicking off a week of action all around the country. There are events, people taking um, action. And then also, as I mentioned, for those in Melbourne, please do um, come outside the mantra to these COVID-safe daily protests. But all of that information is on the timeforahome.com.au campaign. It's not run by one single organisation. It's a collaboration of organisations nationally. Please add your voice. Please take action and stand in solidarity with men, women and children who deserve um, a better future. All right. It's the hashtag Time for a Home campaign. And for more details, go to timeforahome.com.au. And we've been speaking with Jana Favero from the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Thanks so much, Jana. Thanks for having me. Independent Melbourne Radio 3RRR. Simone Ubaldi is here to bring cinema to the airwaves. Hey, Simone. Good morning. Hello. Good morning. Uh, I, <laughs> uh, well, welcome back from your sojourn. Um, Thank you very much. What's, what's on? Oh, there's so many different things on at the movies right now. It's a wild time. Mm. It's a wild, wild western cinema landscape. Melbourne uh, Film Festival is moving to Coburg Velodrome on Friday mm-hmm. with a couple of films which I think, I, I hope it goes well, but it like it does make me laugh hilariously to think of a bunch of cinephiles peering through their car screens and into an ADM radio version of, you know, the most worthy and difficult to pay attention to film. Our plans are, I don't know. Uh, there's lots of, like, reissues still happening at cinemas everywhere. The, the, the worst Godfather film has been re-released, is being re-released with a very fancy title, The Godfather Coda. Yeah, he's remade it, hasn't he? He's changed um, things. He's re-edited it. Yeah. I haven't read any reviews. And, again, probably it's great, but, but it could also be a big steaming pile of turd. <laughs> Which, is this The Godfather 3? Oh, yes, but now it's called The Godfather Coda. Mm. Which is a surefire sign of quality. You can't, anyway, sorry, maybe just me. I really hate the name. Also coming to cinemas, it's an interesting time because this is a movie that, you know, it's a documentary and it's one of those documentaries that will make its way to a streaming platform near you very soon. Mm. But it's a lovely little documentary and for me who's looking for pretty much any excuse to get my popcorn on, um, a really worthy film to go and catch is called Oliver Sacks' His Own Life, um, which is coming out today. What's today? Thursday. I should say, I should preface this by saying, I actually haven't read an Oliver Sacks book. Mm. I listened to part of Awakening, or The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat as an audiobook. It was quite, mm-hmm. but for people who don't know, he is um, a sort of fated neurologist and uh, author who has written a series of. Um, very accessible case studies on his neurology patients over the decades and become this kind of beloved New York intellectual and writer, really. Um, 
and his own sort of brand, just sort of a man about town in New York, a man beloved in the world and a writer beloved in the world for the way he made the inner worlds of people who were neurodiverse accessible. Um, so he wrote about fascinating people throughout his life and what's documented in this film, uh, which has sort of talking heads, has Oliver Sacks before he died in 2015, um, lots of beautiful archival footage and some sort of um, dramatised footage. Uh, what it does is capture the fact that Oliver Sacks' life was absolutely extraordinary, even outside of the fact. Is this, do you guys know this? Is this the thing that everyone knows but me? No, no which because, I, knew that he, I knew that he got into weightlifting. I didn't didn't he? Children. <laughs> yeah. here's, here's my problem. I've got his uh, autobiography, his memoir that he wrote just before he died on the move. And yes. then now this bloody documentary's come out. Yeah. I feel it's the rug's being pulled underneath me. It's like, am I going to watch the documentary and read the book or am I going to? According to those who have done both, they are companion pieces. One is, okay. not, one is not a suitable substitute for the other. No, okay. Um, you know, because he has, <laughs> by all accounts, the beautiful way, I've read some of his articles, the beautiful way of writing and this is really kind of uh, external view as well as the bio- biographical detail. Like you get really beautiful people talking about how much they love him and how wonderful it is. Mm. For those I mean, also, can I say, sorry, I've read a lot of his books and I always thought that if I was a patient, I'd feel bad if it was like, oh, sorry, Oliver, I've only got run-of-the-mill dementia. I'm not, <laughs> you know, I can't. This is certainly a, a life that is going to make you feel small. Um, as your run-of-the-mill dementia might make you feel small in his universe. Like every single person in this book is like so exceptional and so brilliant. And in addition to that, like Oliver Sacks himself, so we know him as this accomplished writer and neurologist. As Mon was saying, he was also an accomplished bodybuilder who set a Californian state record for his like crouch squatting lift of 600 pounds. He had a profound drug addiction in the 1960s. He was like a motorcycle rev head hothead. He was a scuba diver. He was just like a completely like wild, chaotic, brilliant person who lived this fast. He was a, he was celibate for 35 years, which in its own way is a sort of extraordinary thing that kind of happened. Just an amazing story and that's not appropriate for breakfast radio. (laughs) There's a funny story in the the film involving jelly and (laughs) and Oliver Sacks' penis at the end. (laughs) (laughs) That's all we need. (laughs) Yeah. There is actually, it's interesting, like largely beloved, they do make reference to the fact that he had his critics during his life. And there's one line, it's so brutal, but, you know, writers can be. There's one person who said he was a doctor who mistook his patience for a literary career. Oh. But largely they have kind of assembled in the film. They've assembled a couple of people who he kind of wrote about and they were like he just had he, – he, acted with so much profound empathy all the time that actually brought us as human beings to life so that we became something more than just our condition. You know, there, there were human beings in his stories, not just um, not just this kind of neurological diversity. So, so interesting life, interesting character, um, but a really beautifully told film. Like it's a really deftly put together um, biography and um, sad 
but not terrible. I mean, he obviously was this great outpouring of grief when he died, but not not heartbreaking. Like actually, quite uplifting. Mm. And um, yeah, a lot of lot of talking heads. There are there are a lot of talking heads. There are always a lot of talking heads, but there's a lot of kind of action. The archival stuff from when he was growing up in England in the 1950s. I mean, it seems like he came. He had this brilliantly accomplished family, two surgeon parents, and they seem to have. Um, a lot of cameras at the ready, so there's mm-hmm. lots of stuff from that era that, you know, it, it has a lot of texture and you don't, it never feels kind of stuffy or boring. And the talking heads that they do bring in are like Robert Krulwich from Radiolab mm-hmm. and Steve Silberman, you know, they're like, they're, they're, they're lovely talking heads. And, you know, uh, Sax's beautiful late-life partner, Billy, just the most, everyone is just so, like, dignified and smart. And, in fact, no, it's not about me. It's so what? <laughs> You're dignified and smart, Simone. No worries. Yeah. Is it another story about jelly or? <laughs> <laughs> All I have stories about jelly. Stories about my mother asking me to dissect a baby when I was 10. Oh, also in the film, kind of grim. But anyway, yes, no, they're wonderful. It's inspiring. He's an inspiring character and I think what you're left with not just uh, is this deep sense of like wonder at the life that he lived, uh, compassion for the people that he wrote about, but also like this overwhelming joy that he had for the gift of existence. That's what the film ultimately, that's a kind of punctuation point to his life, that he felt profoundly privileged to be alive and he was able to communicate in his writing, with his words, why we should all feel that way, whether or not we are. Mm. Did, did you get a uh, handle on that he, he was very prolific, really? How did he fit it all in? I mean, you know, certainly for a period in the 1960s, just handfuls of amphetamines. Right. Um, but he just, I mean, he's certainly like a writer from birth, one of those people whose every thought and whose like just daily habit was to have a notebook and to be constantly spewing. But it's also clear through the film that he was a man who needed very strong editing. He had a lifelong relationship with the editor that he connected with in the 1980s. Um another brilliant woman uh and you know you see his handwritten notes and it's just it's it's chaotic so there were people who who were helping him to shape that but he but he clearly was just every day with people like a boundless kind of energy for everything that he did in the way that geniuses do you know like Mm. well you would know Genuinely. Um, okay. Well, it's it's uh, what is what, it's in his own life. Oliver Sacks in his own life. A companion, you reckon, to On the Move, the book. On the Move. So I'm told I have not read On the Move. Um, yeah. But yes, and yes. Where do you where do you see it? Do you know where it's showing? Is it getting wide release? Is not getting wide release. It is a Madman Entertainment distribution, so it's going to be turning up at all of your favourite art house cinemas which are in need of love and support. I've been spending a bit of time over of late. It's wonderful. Small audiences, lots of space, but a very transporting experience. And, you know, still like like your staple crouchy art house cinema goers who just have like random, make random noises at the screen during films. (laughs) All the things you love, all the things you love. For Oliver Sacks to have led a life (laughs) half as interesting as his patients, I don't know. This is a whole other chat. Yeah. But absolutely, absolutely he did. And that's what is so wonderful about, you know, a biopic. Like, mm. Biopics are great. This is why this biopic is great. It's because he was a fascinating man. 
and um, worthy of celebration. But it's it's a real it's a heart it's a heart warmer. It's good. okay, excellent. It's Oliver Sacks in his own life, Simone Baldy. Thanks very much. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Triple R. Pip Kelly is a director and producer of Australian documentary series and features, including Jailbirds, Monash, The Forgotten Anzac, and Miss South Sudan, Australia, on the ABC. Her latest award-winning documentary is Thomas Banks' Quest for Love, which premieres today on stand for International Day for People with a Disability. And to tell us about it, the filmmaker joins us on the line now. Pip from Perth, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and good morning. Good morning. <laughs> um, tell us about the subject, Thomas, and how you two came to meet. Um, so, well, this film, documentary, Thomas Banks's Quest for Love, is um, about a young gay playwright with cerebral palsy who is on a quest to find true love. And he writes this play about looking for love and he acts in this play and um, I filmed him uh, looking for love in all the wrong places, as you do when you're 19 and single. And uh, the, play, the film sort of weaves together the play, his real-life scenes and memories that he's had um, on the dance floor, being left on the dance floor or dates that have sort of gone a bit pear-shaped. And it's also got some really beautiful um, real-life scenes of good things that happen too so and yeah. you saw the play I did yeah very early on in 2010 and that was great I mean he just had the whole audience captured and that was um when we first met each other as well he walked through the door with a big smile and quite a magnetic um personality so we got to know each other and then I thought yeah I'll just make a five minute film you know like let's just go hang out we went to midsummer festival together and and filmed together for the day and I was like let's just make a little short film and obviously it progressed into um five years following him uh grow into a beautiful young man and lots of shared journeys along the way so was it hard you know watching him and the way he went about trying to um find love because some of it is like, oh, please don't, please don't do that. <laughs> Was it hard not to step in and go, come on, Thomas, don't be, or, you know, just to kind of, you know, step back and let him make his own mistakes, I guess? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, there's always a, a sort of a tension between wanting to step in and kind of go, hey, like, this guy doesn't look like your type or, you yeah. know. Um, especially when we went out together. But also, you know, I really loved the observational film methodology and um, was just creating a space to witness his uh, journey. So when you're holding the camera in that way, you are sort of really just holding the space too. Um, yeah. What about we have a? Oh, oh actually, sorry. Go on. I was just gonna, yeah, we've got a we've got a clip from the film. We might oh. just play a bit now. Is that all right? Yeah, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's. Oh, I probably don't even need to explain it, but um, it's a. It includes his mum in it as well, so it's it's we're definitely worth a listen. Thomas, do both your parents know you're gay? Yeah. And when did you tell them? Well, I was drinking. What did you say? I am dying. Hey, how's it going? He's always opened up to me about being gay and that he was 
hoping to meet somebody. I suppose initially I thought, oh, okay, but didn't really acknowledge that that was ever going to happen. But then I have seen that Tom's continued to want a male partner. Well, of course, everyone does deserve love um, and everyone's quest is a little bit different. But I think Tom has got a powerful, like it's been at the forefront of everything he does. Um, it's always there for him that he's pursuing and wanting to find that genuine intimacy that has probably eluded him many times. There you go. That's just a bit of uh, an excerpt of Thomas Banks' Quest for Love. You would have spent some time, well, you did naturally, um, with Thomas's family. What did what impression did you get about growing up where he did in the environment that yeah. he was born into? Um, yeah, I did. I, I mean, I had a, a sleepover a couple of nights at Thomas's place on the farm, <laughs> yeah. which was pretty gorgeous, and I met his whole family. <clears throat> They live out um, sort of in country, um, Victoria, um, close to Geelong, and a farming family who um, were originally sheep farmers and they have their own um, shops sort of with stock feed and that kind of thing. So very different to your inner city Melbourne family, um, but just salt of the earth. I just adore Thomas's mum um, and dad, and I've met most of his brothers and sisters so, yeah, that was a really important part of forming trustworthy relationships with Tom and, and his parents and, you know, the rest of his family. Um, and they just, you know, they were just themselves and just came across as really down to earth and obviously really nurturing Thomas and wanting him to, well, just treating him like everyone else. And that has been their main message and, um, from the inter beautiful interviews with Helen Mary Thomas's mum, she always really advocated that whenever there were people around who were kind of limiting, had limiting beliefs around what Thomas could do, they just simply moved on. Mm. They have to pick up and kind of, you know, tussle with it um, and try and convince somebody, no, he can do this or he, he can walk. I mean, they said he was going to be in a wheelchair. Um, and he got rid of that, got rid of any kind of walking sticks. Um, and as she says in the film, he did high jump. Mm. So um, she's just gorgeous and I love her approach is that she just moved on instead of trying to negotiate or convince people. And I think that um, is very much instilled in Thomas's character and personality. It's why he's got so much determination. Yeah, there's a there's a real sense um, of self sufficiency and drive uh, yes. that seems to be inculcated by the parents, and the the father speaks movingly about that as well. Yes, um, absolutely. What about visiting his high school? That must have been confronting. Yes, and you know we didn't really know what was going to happen or how the children were going to um, receive Thomas's presentation, how Tom was going to feel. So yes, that was a really interesting yet fantastic day. Um, and you know, I always knew Thomas was a fantastic public speaker, and he does run his own business. Um, educating all different organisations and groups about 
how to communicate with people with disabilities and how to bring them into your workplace and that kind of thing. But Thomas definitely blew it out of the water with his humour and oh, just his, he's so, yeah, just so raw and able to educate with, yeah, with this sense of humour, which is very attractive. There's a funny part in that in that scene when he's talking to the school kids and he asks them, did you understand what I just said? You know, I think using that, it's like a text-to-talk kind of device and the one of the kids is like, oh, no, nah, I, didn't, I didn't really hear it. And he just types into the text-to-talk device, focus more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. gold. And, um, you know, I think that's... Thomas just pushing back um, mm. on, you know, why should he have to adjust himself? No, you adjust yourself, mm. and that that kind of idea is in the fi- is in the film too. I mean, it is subtitled, but I would love it if by the end of the film, people that you know people aren't reading the subtitles and they've just slowed down and tuned into his voice, and you know, it's about us listening to him. So. Yes. A few snapshots around Melbourne too. Got to see La Mama. Yep. Love La Mama. And um, yes, just um, that was great shooting there. So sad that it's not there anymore, but it's a nice historical um, relic of of that beautiful building. Um, The play developed twice since um, 2010. It was a very stripped back version then. And then it Um, had a couple of versions after that. So, yes, we filmed at La Mama and uh, I think also 45 Downstairs in the Mm. city. And you were present when Thomas's mum and dad saw the premiere? I was, yeah. I was sitting next to them actually. Mm. Um, So that was lovely. Uh, We had a couple of cameras dotted around the theatre space and I had one camera sort of shooting down towards the um, stage and yes, a couple of cameras that were sort of flipping between the stage and his parents' reaction, and obviously they're just so proud. Mm. But what do you think the role is of theatre and art, and say your documentary uh, in you know in moving attitudes? What what would you like to see? What would you and Thomas like to see? Where would you like the needle moved? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think theatre is so powerful and documentary because they're stories in time and they move people along. It's like music, you know, it moves people along in time on a journey. So you get to experience what other people are experiencing and feel what other people are feeling. So this whole documentary has been centred around trying to um, encourage more compassion and understanding for people with disabilities and what they, um, no matter what you know, disability at that they what they go through every day. And Thomas's big um, message is that people with disabilities are not asexual; that they have, um, you know, they're sexual beings. They want to be in relationships. They want to give love and receive love, and they're totally in touch with their sexuality and their gender identity as well, which is important. Well, it's Thomas Banks' Quest for Love. It's screened all over the world. It's won a ton of awards. Which which, what, which of the, all of those uh, prizes and, and where it's screened has been most exciting for you? Um, oh, look, the first uh, premiere screening was at uh, Sydney Mardi Gras Film Festival, um, which is run by Queer Screen, and 
it won Best um, Short Film, so that just was such a massive surprise. Thomas was there for the premiere and he was able to go and receive um, the trophy as well. So I think that kind of really, you know, that just got us so excited and then we were able to, uh, you know, get lots of festival showings um, in Australia but also overseas. So it went to Frameline in San Fran, which is a big LGBTQ plus um, festival over there and also to the RS Prize Film Festival, which is the largest short film festival for um, LGBT um, stories and themes. So, yeah, I think those ones have been really, really great. Um, and then there's been some wild cards as well, like it's screened in Hanoi and oh. Taiwan. It's The Taiwanese have just loved it and they've put it on their educational circuit and it's going, um, it's gone online over there to, in, in an educational sense, I want to get it out into the regions. And I've just, you know, that's just fabulous. It's been mm-hmm. translated into Chinese. Um, yeah, you know, you just never know where something's going to go and where it's going to resonate. Mm-hmm. And I just, I really hope that it um, resonates with our Australian audiences more as it, you know, gets out there and reaches bigger audiences. Um, just quickly, how's, how's Thomas's love life now? Is he gone? Oh, well, look, he's currently um, gallivanting around the East Coast between Sydney and Brisbane on a on, he's having a few dates at the moment right. um, at Say No More. But, yeah. you know, we stopped filming him five years ago and his life has definitely taken lots of pieces. Oh, amazing. Um, awesome. Yeah, lots of material for a sequel. For a sequel, that's right. <laughs> well, Thomas Banks' Quest for Love Part 1 um, <laughs> premieres uh, today on Stan for International Day for People with a Disability. And we've been speaking with director and producer Pip Kelly. Thanks so much, Pip. Thank you so much. It's been lovely. Thanks. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. How do you feel about um, grocery shopping? And has that changed since since lockdown or, you know, before? Like, do you, like, when you go grocery shopping now, do you do, you're more likely to do a full shop or a, just a pick? pick up like the bits and pieces you need for dinner that night i think i'm back to doing small shops but in lockdown when it was the only thing to do um i'll be like oh well got to make it worth it because it's i found it really stressful when it was like height of the height of lockdown uh, of the yeah. virus. didn't want to like, be going into the shops every day no nah, exactly want to get in get the week's week's worth do a full shop yeah get mm. out relax for the rest of the week yeah uh, we've been doing, um, tr- trying to do full shops, um, and just because, you know, because we have been better at planning our meal. So, you know, if you plan your meal, you get your, Kath does that. She'll sit there and she will, um, you know, find recipes and go, all right, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we'll have this. And then right out, right out of shopping list and then. Um, sometimes I will have to go do the shopping and I find it uh, very stressful and I, I'm i not a fan. I'm not a fan at all. I think it's also because um, I don't know a lot of the things on sometimes when there's things on the list and I go, I don't know, I don't even know what aisle to begin with. Like where do I go 
to find this. And also, like, our local IGA is so great, but there's, like, four rows, four <laughs> aisles. Do you know what I mean? So it's like cattle put things on the list where I go, I don't think raw buckwheat is at, oh, God. Is at our IGA. Like, if it is, where, where, what section would I look in would you ask, for that? Ask a staff member or you don't want to do that? Or they don't know either? Yeah, they probably don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't. They're busy. Honestly, yeah. I, I I would I'd be like, is this a character in Charlie Brown? I don't. I've never raw buckwheat. I'm, I'm not. <laughs> maybe I'm. Making... <laughs> no, it's a thing. Yeah. See, there you go. It is a thing. Yeah, a thing. And it, so, but it means that um, you know, Kath, if she's doing the shopping, she'll go. Oh, we don't have that. But because she's doing the cooking, she knows what an alternative is. She'll be like, oh, we can just have. So it's not stressful for mm. her. So it means that I end up in a supermarket and I'll send her a text going, well, there isn't any of what we, the thing that you want. What, it, will, will this work? And then it's usually the last thing that I've got. Mm. So I've got everything. So I've got a basket full of stuff and I'll just have to do laps up and down the aisle waiting for a text back. <laughs> yeah. Which, and then it'll, and then eventually I'll go, oh, I'll just get this, you know, uh. who cares? I'll just get it. And then I'll get in the car and then I'll get a text saying, oh, you know, I'll send a message going, I've got this, you know, I hope that's okay. And then it'll be, nah, that's not going to work. And I'm like, I can't. <laughs> and then when I went to Melbourne, though, um, I went into a, a supermarket there and I just was, like, overwhelmed with how big it was. It was just like walking I got so excited. I had to go and buy a watermelon. But so... So the way you phrased that sounded like I was so excited that to quell my excitement, I had to go buy a watermelon <laughs> <laughs> to calm <And> the... down. <laughs> the, the watermelon was stopping me from buying the heaps of oh. politics. <laughs> like it was, you know, because I had to carry the. I didn't have a bag. I was. I just had to go in and buy a watermelon for the chooks. Chooks love watermelon, so I went to buy watermelon for the chooks. And I was like, oh, I just. But look at all these. Look at the things. I there's, there's raw buckwheat here for sure. Like I was just like, oh, I'd love to do a full shop here. I'd love it. You know, I have no problems if I got the shopping list. You know, because quite a, like I'll have to go to different places and stuff. And also, if Kath gets me the shop, it'll be because I'm going to some other town like I'm going to want Thaggy or Lean Gatha or Foster or something she goes oh just you know why you're at and then eventually I'll just I'll go to the wrong supermarket and Catherine will go, oh you don't go to that so they don't have what we I'm like I don't no I don't know I try and pride myself on being told something once and then not texting or being in contact it's like you've been given a job there's your list you sort it out oh that stresses me so much <laughs> and so i'll wander i'll go from shop to shop i'll do whatever it takes to find that goddamn raw buckwheat i want to get home daniel <laughs> oh, no. it's the I challenge that's what you've signed up for i didn't i didn't sign up for it it was just, I'm just trying Have to this textual hand-holding, wandering down the aisles. Oh, look, I'm with you. I agree. But I just try and I, – sometimes I'll even leave the phone in the car. <gasps> but, like, you're oh. on your goddamn own here. Oh, oh. I, can't, I can't handle that. I think – I feel that Kath has the same 
mentality. I, I bet you she's probably she gets my text messages and looks at looks at it and goes, "Nah, you're puts it down and goes, you're <laughs> you, you sort it out you, yourself." But that's what she'll tell me. She'll be like, "Just you know, don't worry about it. If you can't find, don't worry about it." But then there'll be the one time where I don't worry about it. Mm, you and it's yeah. like, well, we can't have dinner tonight because we're missing the final <laughs> well, ingredient. That, that's right. And when there is a meal prep and it's like you're using the substitute because yeah. you couldn't find the real deal, it's like, oh, we'll just use this that you got. It's a real blow. It's a real yeah. blow. And you can't enjoy because you know the dinner's not optimal. It's just not. It's suboptimal. Yeah. Uh, because you've screwed up because Aww. you're not proficient in the market. Gerald, are you okay? This is this being a bit hard. <laughs> no, I'm thinking okay? that both of us, really. I mean, this is. Uh, but it's but it's very European to go on small shops. Oh, I, lo- oh I love Europe. I love yeah. Europe. <laughs> <laughs> did you find it? Did you find shopping stressful before you were planning your meals out? Or it's only when you have no, to stick to it. No, because I would. Oh. Would I find stressful? Yeah, to just be like, I'd just get the staples, you know, get mm. bread and oh, oh, toasted cheese sandwiches. It is. <laughs> but it was just quickly. It was it was fun during. Oh, it, it was interesting at the height of the pandemic. Uh, I saw some weird stuff at supermarkets. I mean, a everybody's stressed out. Mm. Mm-hmm. No one really wants to be there. Well, I mean, it's your one trip out of the house, but everyone's the people were wearing gloves. A lot of mm. supermarkets mandated the wearing of gloves. Um, but I saw so many thefts. Really? Oh, like six? Just like straight into the po- the pocket, or like um, putting carrot, like everything through under as the, carrots under the jacket, into <gasps> the pocket, fleeing the premises. <gasps> because they because they were masked up, and they knew that no one was going to tackle them to the ground. So and so, you just saw lots of staff look at each other, going, "That's not worth it." Oh, imagine wow. that! Yeah, and then I saw because I I wander through aisles like there's normally a rhythm, but because mm. I'm missing the raw buckwheat, I'm all over the shop, mm. and uh, and so someone thinks they've got the aisle to themselves, but then it's like, bam! Daniel shows up yeah. and spots them thieving. Oh, uh-uh. anyone make eye contact with you? Like, yeah. did, oh, yeah, and do yeah. they hold it? Just... Oh, God, really to psych me out. Yeah. That's what I'll do. I'll go to a supermarket and I'll pick up raw buckwheat. <laughs> yes, Maintain eye contact with you the whole time as I put it under my shirt and, and walk out. Woo! <sighs> That's right. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website. <laughs> <laughs>